just a little bit about me since I was young. Um, I've been somewhat of an emotional person. I'm more of like a slamming doors, crocodile type of tears woman. Uh, so if you're interested, here I am. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can't, this is not time for a relationship to form, but, but maybe after the gathering, so we'll talk. Uh, listen, I can't think of a time when I didn't have an emotion to share or feeling to process. I'm a two on the Enneagram, which means by and large, I'm an intimacy junkie. I can't help myself. Uh, feelings and emotions are a part of my relational ecosystem. They're very much how I experience the world and experience other people's. And for a long time, uh, because of the home I grew up in, there were two eights, one nine, and a one. And if that doesn't sound like anything to you, if you're like, that's math, then don't worry about it. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I grew up in a home full of thinkers, not feelers. So for a long time, I thought my emotions and the experiences attached to them were super weird that they were a weakness or something that made me different or odd at times. And, and while it's true that the world doesn't experience emotions exactly as I do, which is unfortunate for all of you, uh, the experience is far more familiar and even human than I knew. Now, some of you hear me say emotions and you think, great, I know someone who needs to hear this teaching. And um, maybe even that person got a, a nudge a second ago because they're conveniently sitting next to you. Uh, but for the sake of all future arguments, I think it needs to be said that we are all emotional people. I know you've been talking about this by and large, that our wiring, science tells us, is emotional by nature. Even our rational and logical thinking is built around an emotional, instinctual desire for security, to be seen as intelligent or strong. So even though some of us uh, might be the ones crying on the floor or whatever, whatever your kind of expression is, everyone in here is an emotional being, being by nature, whether those emotions are expressed inside, outside, or not. That being said, if you got nudged just a second ago, I just want to bless you in the name of Jesus to nudge that person right back and give them a little blessing and say, welcome to the family of God. We're all emotional. Uh, I recently read a study uh, from Harvard that said that humans, when confronted, will almost always respond with emotion over reason, which is really validating for some of us in the room. Again, emotion is hardwired into the human condition. It's what drives our behavior and informs how we relate to the world and to the people in it. And while emotion is unavoidable, the study went on to say that within our hardwiring is also a deep determination to drive and to avoid the negative emotions away, particularly those of pain and loss. And this study said because of this, humans are more inclined then to lean into false confidence before they will accept reality. That when confronted with pain, our first response will be avoidance. And if given the choice, this will all be done in a social and communal space rather than isolated and alone. Meaning that deep within each of us lies a scientifically proven instinctual desire for comfort and convenience over and against discomfort and disruption. Yes? Yes, big yes and amen for those of us who had donuts this morning. That, that we are and that we will be more inclined to be fabricators or people willing to live in false realities more than we will be willing to confront reality. That, that, that we, um, by our very nature and our design, will work against all odds to maintain, to find, and to preserve connection to self and others, even if that connection is an illusion. This is what I like to affectionately call the gospel of avoidance. <laughs> Some of you have dated those people. They've experienced that. Yeah. 
What science is trying to explain here, I think, is life post-Eden. And that life has forced us, uh, post-Eden, to handle and to hold emotions that go beyond our hard wiring or what we were built for. And so in our, our human nature, we do what we can. We survive, we ignore, we suppress, and we compartmentalize that which is painful or contrary to our nature, allowing the fear of what lies beneath or what may not lie beneath to keep us from the freedom and the life we so long to live. We then become people of the surface, living out of the 10% of who we are for fear that the other 90% will crush us. Or, or, or worse still, it would crush or humiliate or hurt or disgust those that we love. And sadly, this way of living, by its very nature, will force us to forfeit and forego who we really are. To live under the powerful and yet deceptive mantra of ignorance is bliss. Now this, this morning, I, I want to take some time to talk about this more at length, specifically through the lens of Scripture, and even more specifically through the life of Jesus. Now before we get to Jesus, we're going to quickly uh, look at the lives of a few others whose ex uh, experience with their emotions, or maybe better said, their failure to deal with what was happening inside, not only hindered them, but cost them more than they could have imagined. So uh, for the sake of time, we're not actually going to read these two texts, and we're going to read another one. Is that Okay. Don't tell Dave. Dave, if you're in here, just, just roll with it. Let's roll with it. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, though, would you turn to 1 Kings chapter 19? You can kind of follow along as I just kind of give you a little framework. We're going to talk about uh, this man named Elijah. In 1 Kings, we read about him and his life. He was a famous prophet uh, in Israel's history. And Elijah, where we find him in 1 Kings 19, was coming off of what we would say was a busy month. He had experienced drought and famine much like a lot of us this month, confrontation with the idols of Israel, kind of a big deal, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. We win, he wins, it's victorious, it's a really crazy, cool story. And then uh, post that big confrontation with Israel, he now finds himself uh, having death threats against him by this queen who's after his life for what he did in that space of idolatry. So now he's literally running for his life. And in verse 3 of chapter 19, we find Elijah collapsing from fatigue, both physically and emotionally. And in a climactic moment, he tells Yahweh that he's had enough, that he was in so many ways at the end of his rope. And in verse 10 specifically, we read Elijah's emotional response to God. And from it, we see deep frustration, we see grief, we see loneliness, and we see fear. Elijah loses it. This prophet has hit the wall, and he had no other choice but to cry out. So in the depth of his pain, we read on that Yahweh meets him, and not in the ways he expects, but he does meet him nonetheless. Turn with me now, if you will, to Numbers chapter 20. And here, we're going to read verses 2 to 12. We're not going to read it. Y'all are going to read it in your hearts and your minds while you're listening very attentively. It's going to be amazing. Here we find a man by the name of Moses. Not only is he the guy from the hit movie Prince of Egypt, but he is also, got a few of you, okay. He, is, uh, he was known as one of Israel's greatest leaders and also a friend of Yahweh. He's this really significant man in the, the story of, of Israel. And, and here in chapter 20, we find the people of Israel, they're thirsty, they're tired, and they're hangry. And this is a continual theme if you're like, I've heard of this before. Yep, and you're going to hear about it again. It just keeps happening over and over again. So people of Israel go to Moses in this text. 
And keep in mind, this is probably the basquillieth time they've gone to him. Like, hey, we're hungry. Hey, we're tired. That's kind of their experience in the scriptures. That was an accurate exegesis, if you're wondering. Uh, That's exactly what happens. So they they go to Moses. um, And and so Moses goes in with Aaron. They go to Yahweh. And they say, Yahweh, will you provide? Uh, We need water specifically. Yahweh says, yes, I'll provide. And he says, specifically, I'm going to provide water through a rock. You speak to the rock. And the rock will, will give way to water. And uh, we read then that Moses takes the staff of the presence, and he takes it out of the presence of God. He goes to the rock, and he strikes it twice. Uh, Why he does this, we don't know, but we know that uh, what he's doing here uh, had consequences, meaning that he did something at some level that Yahweh didn't want him to do. And while that something may not be clear to us, it would have certainly been clear to Moses. We read on that because of this, he was not able to go into the promised land. This thing that he had been working towards for his whole life. I mean, this is what he was doing. And Yahweh says the consequence here is that you will not go with the people into the promised land. Moses, when confronted by the people, undoubtedly held deep emotion for them, love for them. These were his people. But but also frustration with them. I mean, can you imagine the pressure uh, of being a priest and a provider and a leader and a parent to about one million people? I mean, we think we got a tough in ministry some days. That's one million people. That's too many. And, and you can imagine the emotional weight. It would just be crushing. It would be ridiculous. And while I know it's speculation in the text, we know that from Moses' history with anger and outbursts, that this is not unreasonable to believe or presume that the striking of the rock was an emotional response from him. And in that, disobedience. And disobedience that cost him so very much. Now, what am I getting at? These are just two examples. Uh, I don't have time to talk about David, whose unbridled desire ultimately led him to commit adultery and murder. Or or Jeremiah, who's had this angst that burns so deeply within him that he was known to call down damnation on other people. The point here is that when we're unwilling to deal with our emotions, or to look beneath the surface of our present comfort, to deal with what's actually happening within us below, whatever's going on down here, we will be bound to do and be things that we are not, ultimately leading us further away from who we are and who we were made to be. Now, these men, they're faulty, faulty men in so many ways, just like us, but they are also examples to us, and their lives serve as a warning for us for what could be. Now, thankfully, they're not our only example. This is where I actually want you to turn your Bibles. We're going to read together Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to pick up in verse 36. Matthew writes this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he, found, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now here in this famous passage, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, probably a a text you're familiar with. The garden was known to be a place of prayer and reflection. And this practice of going away or getting alone with the Father, this is nothing new for Jesus. This is something he did regularly. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, we're told that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. So this was common practice for our rabbi. But because of the nature of this practice, we don't have any firsthand accounts of what might have taken place in these times when he was away, except for in this moment, in the garden. For the first time, our biographers are present, and we catch a glimpse of what Jesus' time alone with the Father might have looked like. And in the garden, we find Jesus' whole person on display. We find deep emotions coming from a man walking into a nightmare. He he was no Socrates drinking the poison and telling his friends to stop crying because he was going to a much better life. He was a man looking into darkness and seeing the grinning faces of all the demons of the world looking back at him. In the garden, we find Jesus both filled with disappointment and his friends who he called family and also riddled with despair as he comes to the Father in desperation asking him if there's any other way. Sorrow, fear, betrayal, rejection, raw and real emotions all laid bare before the Father. And as we follow this scene all the way through, we'll find that Jesus, without denying anything that was taking place within him, by acknowledging what was happening, actually finds freedom. He, with words, cries out to the Father, expressing the anguish of his soul, giving God both his emotions and his desires, even begging him for a different reality. And notice, this was not a one-sided event. In the garden, we find communion. We find union between the Father and the Son in a place of vulnerability and brokenness. And at the end of this time, we see Jesus move from deep pain and wrestling to resolution and submission. A settled sense of self and a settled sense of purpose, both of which led him into the deepest and truest expression of who he was and who he would be. Jesus, our perfect example, human, now able to empathize in every possible way, complex, and yet faithful to meet God even in the depths of his soul. But this is Jesus, right? I mean, he was God. So he must have had some other resources available to him. Maybe it was like a little peace tablet he jammed under his tongue and was like feeling better at the whatever during the time. Or maybe he just didn't feel as deeply as we do. You know, he had that, the God factor. Maybe he didn't actually feel the sting of betrayal and loss. The waves of fear and powerlessness that overtakes you when presented with a a loss or a disappointment so great that you can't breathe. Maybe he just... He just didn't experience that because he was Jesus. And maybe that was just it. He was Jesus, so he could go there. He could could go to those hard places and survive. He had the strength to do it, but us, we're different. It's just not that easy. 
Have you ever uh, been somewhere, whether it be with a friend or watching a movie or listening to a song, and began just to cry or, or get angry? You know, one of the two, those are always fun emotions. And, and it just felt like for no reason at all. You know what I mean? You're like sitting here watching Free Willy and you're going like, this should, uh, this is whatever. And you are feeling like, oh, whales, I love them. Uh, but, but other things, you know, you're sitting there going like, I don't know why I'm so upset or driving in the car. Not that any of you would do this because I'm not sure you drive in cars. I don't really know what's happening. We've Ubered the whole time. But you're driving in cars and all of a sudden someone just cuts in front of you. You're like, this is personal, man. What are you doing? Get out of my lane. What, what did I do to you? I mean, I, I never have those experiences, but if I did, that's what it would be like. <laughs> right? So this weird space where, where, where you're conflicted. You're like, I don't know why I'm having these emotions. Or maybe you were in a conflict with someone you love, and while they're expressing themselves, you keep thinking to yourself, I feel nothing. I feel nothing. Or I, I have no idea what I'm feeling. And they're going, tell me what you feel. You know, this is the two in your life is saying, and what are you feeling about that? And they're going, I don't know what I feel, I have no idea, or maybe still just the thought of doing a deep dive into your emotions, even as we're talking about it here, makes you freeze or want to throw up. Maybe you just want to shut down or shut it off just at the thought of it. I remember when I started counseling, my therapist said to me, and like, I guess an exercise at the beginning, so it was very traumatizing. She said, Bethany, I want you to imagine for a second just sitting in your apartment, you're just all alone, no TV on, no music, nothing. It's just you alone with yourself. Tell me how that makes you feel. And even as she was describing the image, I remember squirming and thinking, stop. I was overwhelmed at just the thought of it. A very simple and normal thing set my soul into a frenzy. Fear and panic and sadness flooded my heart as I imagined the scenario she was describing. For many of us, the thought of looking beneath the surface or identifying our emotions or the behaviors and choices connected to them feels like too much. It's not that we don't want to know or we don't want to be freed or we don't even want to be transformed. It's just that in doing so, it would mean that we have to unlock and expose things about us, even things that feel foreign to us. Emotions and feelings that by their very nature threaten to steal or harm or restrict or impair our safety. And some of us, we feel like our dignity. Fear, guilt, and shame keeping us in an emotional gridlock. And so we white-knuckle it. We tell ourselves that what's happening is going to go away, that if we just wait long enough, it'll die down. Time heals all things. Right. That, that we can manage it, that what we do doesn't always have to be driven by what's happening below and that it won't actually affect anything major, and so we avoid. Denying ourselves any opportunity to explore our internal world, we stay busy. And, and we avoid those friends who ask those questions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, thank you. Uh, we avoid God because he's always going after that stuff. I mean, he's always in there, in those places. And then we do what we have to, to deflect and block out what cannot be contained. And so we just manage it. Or maybe we medicate. We do what we can to numb ourselves from the realities and even the potential realities of what's happening. And maybe this is conscious and maybe this is subconscious. Maybe you know about it, maybe you don't. You Netflix and chill or whatever, and you binge on your favorite foods and drinks and alcohol, and you look to others to, to distract and to satiate the ache within. And maybe still we pretend. That's for kids, is it? 
We rationalize and we minimize what we're feeling. You know, it's just, it's been a really stressful season. Everyone has a hard time after they graduate. That's just what happens. It's a personality or it's an Enneagram thing. Do you know what I mean? We're just, and whatever. Uh, I'm a four, whatever, no, no judgment. Uh, it's a few drinks, you know, I don't need them, but they help, you know, and that's okay. I want a little help along the way. And we reason away our emotions and behavior in the name of logic and hope we're right. And, and yet still at some point, in some small moment, right before we fall asleep at night, or maybe it's right before we take that next drink, we feel something. It just kind of moves up to the surface and we know that it's not really working. Those things aren't actually doing what they're supposed to do. And even if it's a, 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 just a moment, just a second, a glimpse, we know that avoiding what's happening within us only gets a short-term relief at the price of long-term pain. We know that. that. That it actually lengthens and deepens our anxieties rather than frees us from them. And that our avoidance only inflates pain, leaving us in a more toxic and paralyzed condition than we were before. That medicating will drive us to compulsive, even neurotic behaviors. That it more often than not becomes our master, demanding more and more of us until we are completely slaves to it. That, that pretending, it, it actually leads to soul isolation ultimately demanding that we forfeit all of our reality in order to cover the cost of just part of it. But the greater tragedy and danger still is how easy it is for us to maintain and remain in a comfortable, distorted illusion about our lives. It's easy for us, particularly with where we live and how we live and the lives that we live, it's easy. And make no mistake about it. This is what the enemy is after for you, church. This is what he's come for. If he can keep us comforted and comfortable, medicated, avoided, and managed, then he can keep us from being transformed people. In his book, uh, The Emotionally Healthy Church, Pete Cazero says, Scazzaro says, ignoring any aspect of who we are as men and women made in God's image always results in destructive consequences in our relationship with God, others, and self. Meaning, if the goal is to become like Jesus, to be people who have a full, healthy sense of what we're about, who we are, and by the way, this is called freedom. Freedom to be who we are. We will also be people who, like Jesus, have raw, emotional, intense experiences that will be part of the journey. And in those experiences, we actually get to learn to express our emotions without shame, without guilt, without condemnation. And we get to do that freely to God and to the people of God. We get to express that to other people. Richard Rohr says, what we don't transform, we transmit. And the truth is, if we don't become people of transformation, people who allow the, uh, Jesus to work in us, to change us and to heal us, to transform our pain, our loss, our disappointment, our fear into wisdom and compassion and grace and freedom and hope, we will end up being ruled by our emotions rather than be instructed by them. And we will continue to transmit the very things that we despise about ourselves. And we'll miss out, more importantly, on the life and the freedom that God has for us. Again, that isn't easy. This isn't an easy road. And I was afraid this morning, man, I'm gonna, I don't want to make it sound like it's just a one and done. It's easier than it sounds because the truth is often the greatest motivator for any of us to be transformed and to do the work of looking beneath the surface comes from pain in our lives. 
Pain by its very nature demands that something changes. It pulses and drives and works to relieve at all costs. Pain is the stimulus for us to go beyond the surface of our lives into the deep ache of our souls. Think about the times in your life where you've done the work of identifying emotions or conflict within, and I'm betting if you're anything like me, it came at a time where you were forced to look at it. Because the desire for pain to stop at that moment was greater than the fear of uncovering it. Pain, despite what it says, is not a punishment as much as it is an invitation to greater freedom. The great illusion of this journey to look beneath the surface is that we have to do it all by ourselves. That's why we're limited. We have this, like, it's hard to get to those places. It's overwhelming. But for those of us who are in Jesus, it's a journey we will never take alone. So often I get caught up in my own responsibilities in the process, how I'm going to transform the pain or that, you know, just like manage it, help Jesus. I love to help him all the time. I have so many good ideas and he loves to hear me (laughs) tell him about those. I start making lists. I'm like, listen, sweetie, here's what we got to do this week. Take this pain, make it like this, do it for for other people. I'm telling you, it's weird. I don't know if that's a one wing or a weird wing, whatever it is on my Enneagram, it's a problem. Uh, And truthfully, it becomes a giant mess faster than I can even begin to have the conversation. The the journey to look beneath is, at its core, one great act of love and surrender. Surrender in that it demands that we not only give up the right to manage the mess below, but that we also allow Jesus to do and say what he wants to with what he finds. And this is good news. Because what you have to say about it is nothing, probably nothing, like he wants to say about it. You see something and you become afraid. He sees it. He swallows it up in his perfect love. He casts it out and you're free. This is a place of surrender where we say, I'm not God. You are. And in that we find freedom. This journey often demands something we don't have. And that's how we feel when we start it. And the truth is, it will and that's where Jesus comes in. It's a beautiful space where he, he forms and transforms. Now, this is also a, a space and an act of love in that we are exposed for all that we are and love just the same. One author put it this way. So the gospel says you are more flawed and sinful than you ever dared to believe and yet more accepted and loved than you ever dared to hope. The work of transformation is both an undoing and a rebuilding, and it can only be done by the architect himself. And hear me, he does his best work, and I'm testifying, he does his best work and his greatest work within when the odds are bad, when it looks irreparable, when the damage is the most severe and the only hope is resurrection. He does his best work. This is where he goes to town. This is where he is most glorified. And this is where we get to yield to him, to trust him as a good dad, to lead us all the way to keep us safe, to shepherd us all the way through. And he does it. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we, amidst our very real fears and apprehensions, which, by the way, is a legitimate thing, become people who are actually transformed and freed from our internal worlds, living in all that Jesus has invited us into? How do we do it? First, we have to practice awareness and paying attention. You thought that was something for the fifth graders. It is something for the big grown-ups in the room. We're going to learn to practice to pay attention and to practice being aware. Be aware and pay attention to who you are. We don't like it because someone told us we weren't what we thought we were. We don't want to look at it because it'll mean it might be true, that thing that someone said or that thing that someone acted towards us or whatever. It might be true. Listen, pay attention. Let the Holy Spirit of God tell you the truth. 
The reason we're not looking nine out of ten times is because we're hearing the lies before we see the truth. And there's a difference. Pay attention to who you are, your personality. Notice your strengths and your weaknesses, your thoughts and your belief. What am I saying to myself? What am I believing about myself? Notice and become familiar with your motivations. Why am I doing that? Why am I saying that? Why am I feeling this way? Become familiar. And when you're taking stock and the inventory seems slim, you're like, I don't know, man, there's not a lot here. Invite the Holy Spirit. He loves to show you a lot of other things. It's very humbling and supernatural. Uh, and, and here's what I'd say practically. Start small. You're like, how do I do this? Start small. Give yourself a ton of grace to start small. Journal out a few truths at the beginning of the day. And maybe at the end, like, I have red hair. And it is rocking this morning. Okay, whatever, Ruthie, that was for you. This can take three minutes, three minutes. Set an alarm on your phone and take inventory for a minute or two at your, on your lunch break. What am I sad about? What am I feeling anxious about? What am I happy about? Or maybe even what is going on in me that Jesus is trying to change? Take time, press into these questions, and know that this practice will require that you slow down, that you sit still even for just a few moments. There is rarely, if ever, clarity when we're going fast. Next, practice integration. Don't get caught up on that word. Simply put, this means start allowing and incorporating your emotions, feelings, and experiences into conversation with self, God, and others. Welcome moments of emotion. Ask the Holy Spirit what you need to know about those emotions and how they're influencing what you're believing about yourself and God. Ask how your emotion is informing your behavior. Allow your emotional life to actually fold into your spiritual life. Where you have knowingly compartmentalized or avoided. When you're ready, as the Spirit gives you the permission, bring those things into your whole person, even into your relationships with others. When we embrace and look at and even give God our emotions, they often, in their exposure, lose their power and influence and become something we learn from, not something that controls us. That's where the transformation begins. Integration allows our emotions and our internal world to be a part of who we are, but not the sum total of who we are. Finally, do this all in community. You're like, you're a pastor, you have to say that. Yep, I do. And I'm going to, because we can't actually look beneath the surface of our lives with just a mirror in front of our faces. That's a false illusion. This journey is one that demands exposure, which by the way, in its very nature and core, is love. That's what love does. It exposes us and embraces us at the same time. It's not just a picture of, there's not just uh, exposure, but safe exposure. To have a complete picture of who you are requires both your perspective and the perspectives of people who know you. Our perspectives of self, while they are largely accurate for most of us, usually contain important omissions. <laughs> so just a, a fun tip. I felt that there was a nudge in the room by the Holy Spirit. Someone's like, yeah, baby, that's you. <clears throat> um, look, we all have blind spots where we lack information about ourselves that other people have. Community is the other mirror we need for the journey. It's the place where the truth about who you are is catalyzed. As God transforms you, your community is a place where you will not only speak, but live out and into that transformation. This is the place where you'll start to like, is this okay for me to do? And they're like, do it. And you're like, okay. Whatever. I don't know what you do. And look, the days are going to get hard. So when they get hard. The community is the one, the people, who will hold you up and tell you you can do it. Community, healthy community is one of the most powerful and necessary tools in the journey beneath the surface. 
And a community who knows themselves is one that is free to live the life that they were intended to. Now, occasionally there are times when I'm preaching that I get to speak from a place of deep personal experience. That's what I get to do this morning. And it means a lot to me. About 10 years ago, my life was falling apart internally. From the outside, you wouldn't have known it, but I'm also Southern. We tease our hair. We're trained to say, we're just fine, uh, just as soon as we're able to order a sweet tea at the table. It's like, this is like our training. It's a thing that we do. And when I was a teenager, my mom left our family. I was 14. And uh, when she left the world, it like both stopped and sped up. And I don't know if you've ever had moments like that. It's that weird paradox of how... um, Trauma and pain happens. Life moves really fast for me from that point on, a million miles a minute. There's a lot I could say about that. I don't have time. But what's important uh, for you to know is that uh, after she left, um, my life was really different. And all we could do in that time and that space was survive. There were seven years between the time that she left uh, and when she'd make contact with me again. So I was 14. She left in seven years when I heard from her. I was 27. I was 21 when I heard from her again. And most of my time during those seven years was spent doing what had to be done. I was working. I was taking care of my sister who was sick at the time, looking after my dad and my brother to try to care for their needs and their loss. And if I had any extra time, it was spent looking out the window or waiting by the phone, dreaming about what it would mean if she came back and what it would mean to me if she could actually like speak to me or tell me why it had happened. And as I got older, I looked to friendships and relationships to reconcile what had happened, but those only temporarily helped and ultimately seemed to prolong my pain in a lot of ways rather rather than remedy it. And truth be told, for the longest time, I didn't know what was happening until one day I began to notice that I was sad. And I'm by my very nature not sad. And I was sad all the time. And I just remember saying, I'm sad all the time. I was in an unhealthy relationship, a clear metaphor for my relationship with my mother. It's a whole other therapy session. And, uh, and I was wrecked by it. I was absolutely wrecked by it. And for the first time in my life, I felt powerless to do anything about it. I was in seminary, so I upped my spiritual disciplines, my prayer times, my serving. I really did all that. And it's crazy looking back because I realized that all of those things actually pushed me further into my pain, which was a mercy of God. Uh, than, it, than it was something that it was actually hindering me. So 10 years after my mom left, um, this is the first time I could actually look beneath the surface. And my breaking point was this perfect cocktail of heartbreak and frustration and loss. Story for another day. But I broke in the middle of a seminary classroom. I got up and left the classroom, and, um, and God met me. And my remedies, um, these medications or spiritual formulas that I had just kind of calculated myself, those were tools for survivals. And all of them proved to be faulty saviors with expiration dates. And that's what happens when we're trying to manage things like that. And it was in that moment, this breaking moment, that I experienced Jesus in a way I hadn't in 23 years. It was like I took a breath. When I broke, when everything collapsed inside of me, I could breathe for the first time. The thing that I was most afraid to look at, the the pain that would surely consume me and crush me, the inextinguishable agony of being rejected by the one person on the planet who was supposed to choose me and supposed to love me, The shame of the loss of my mother's presence when I was learning what it meant to be a woman was somehow held up by a love too deep to me to perceive or understand. I don't know what happened in that moment, but he held it up. And I wasn't crushed. And I didn't die. And it was in that moment that I knew life, that there was a better way to live. I was in the kingdom of God since I was four years old. I said yes to the call of ministry at 15 years old. But this moment, this was life for me. There was more for me than what I had been living or feeling. I had been plateaued. There was a stickiness about what was happening with my relationship with Jesus. And this was freedom. 
one day at a time, one step at a time, paying attention to what was happening inside of me, tons and tons of therapy, actually, uh, you know, leaning into these aches inside of me day by day. It was like Jesus slowly was willing to lead me into my emotions and tell me that I would never be unsafe again. And what was happening within became a catalyst for the life I'm living right now, the reason I get to stand here with you today. This is it. This is the testimony. I know this is a lot of information. I'm a new, very attractive redhead up here, and it's distracting <laughs> to a lot of you. So we needed a breath, didn't we? We needed a little breath. But I, I, I just want to say this is, this is a game changer for so many of us. This is what changed and saved my life. It could be simple. It could be something you just read in EHR and move on. Or this could be a moment for you today. This could be a space where God really transforms. Would you stand with me?